Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern-day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. Well, greetings, everyone. It's Don Johnson with the Proclaim and Defend podcast. I want to welcome you to this session today, just before Christmas. Merry Christmas to everyone, and hope you're having a wonderful holiday with your family. We are up here in Victoria, B.C. as well, so uh, blessings to all of you. Now, we're still publishing workshops from our summer sessions. I, sort of hard to believe, but that's just the way our scheduling has worked out. We have uh, two more workshops to publish, the one today and one more after this. Uh, this one comes from Pastor Tim Potter from Metro Ohio. It's well known to most of us. He uh, he was one of our speakers during the conference, and he also uh, conducted a workshop, which uh, one this is what I haven't yet heard because I didn't get to attend this one. I am... Um, I've heard little bits of it now, been editing the audio, and uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Uh, he has, man, he's got a wraparound title. It's Helping Members Own Spiritual Reproductivity, or the Theology of Disciple Making. So when he says own, he means own it, I think is what he means, and I think you'll find this uh, profitable as you listen. As I mentioned after this, we'll have one more workshop. It'll probably come out in a few weeks. Uh, that one comes from Jim Berg, so looking forward to that. Now, as with several of our workshops, we have these little sound glitches, and I don't quite understand how this happened, but it's it's uh, there's two spots in the recording where you'll hear he'll say something, and then it'll cut off, and then it picks up a few seconds later. And these both there, and these happened sort of in a pattern very similar on all the workshops. So I'm, I'm coming to think that maybe it's a feature, not a bug in their, in their recording software or whatever it was they were using. So somehow this happened. And uh, so I've cut out the dead air and you'll hear, you'll hear just a little bit of silence and then you'll cut back in. I hope it's not too distracting. It's near the beginning, you know, the first third or so of the recording, not quite as far as that, but, but uh, so the gist of it's there, and we think that it'll, you'll profit from it. So the last thing I want to say before we get started is to remind you to subscribe, if you haven't already, to our uh, podcast. And if you become a paying subscriber, you will get immediate access. When we, when we interview a frontline author, you'll get immediate access to their article online. The other thing that uh, you'll get if you become a yearly subscriber is we will also send you uh, Frontline, uh, the print magazine, so that you'll be able to get all the articles. We try to interview all of our authors, but they don't, uh, for whatever reason, sometimes it can't work out. They Their schedule doesn't work. Uh, some of them, we got one coming up, interviewed a brother from Hong Kong. So that was a little bit challenging, coordinating the time zones. We managed it for this one, but it's not always possible. Any In any case, uh, I do hope you'll subscribe. We do uh, appreciate it. You support the FBFI by doing this, and uh, we believe that the work we're doing is very needful for the Lord's work in these days. So uh, that's it from me. I'm going to turn it over. There's a fellow, I don't remember who it was, is introducing Brother Potter, and then Brother Potter, Potter will conduct his workshop. So uh, that's what's coming up just now. Our session today is What is a Disciple Maker? A Biblical Theology of Disciple Making, led by Pastor Tim. 
Pastor Tim Potter is a senior pastor at a Grace Church of Mentor in Ohio. He has four kids. He's been there since 1991. Now, if I was reading your bio correctly, you became pastor... 2006. 2006? Yeah. yeah. Well, good. Yeah. Uh, well, we have him here today. If you're using your um, if your booklet for notes, uh, it'd be page 18 for this session. Uh, if you need a handout, I have some here. I think everyone has some. So, other than that, welcome Pastor Tim. All right. Thank you. The notes that you have, I was just going through them somehow in transit from our computer to the school's computer, um, inherited some typos. So I apologize. We'll get through this as, as effectively. We'll find out if it's the computer's fault, the software's fault, or actually ours. <laughs> I'm sure it's not the school's. But uh, you'll see those typos as we go through. But nonetheless, anymore I do notes, the less and less blanks I like to have. Uh, but there are a couple there, and uh, that's where the... How can a typo exist in a blank? You'll see. <laughs> uh, you'll see. It is, it is interesting. Uh, so I grew up in a pastor's home. How can I summarize this? I grew up in a really good home. Um, I grew up in, in the Ohio Bible Fellowship. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, the Ohio Bible Fellowship formed in 1968. Um, it's separated from the IFCA National in 1968. You're familiar with the IFCA? Um, There were 17 men of the IFCA regional in Ohio um, that uh, took issue with the IFCA deciding uh, from the top down that they would no longer write any articles on the doctrine of ecclesiastical separation in the Voice magazine. Um, The only reason I know this is because when I was finishing up my MDiv, I had a professor named Dr. Mark Sidwell, and he gave us a list of 30 things to write a paper on. And I went up to him, and I knew he was a researcher and always liked to write new articles on his research. Every summer, he took a trip to study a different part of world church history. And so I said, hey, I know you like to study these things. Is there anything I can study for you that you haven't studied yet uh, that's not on this list? And he said, absolutely. He goes, I'd like to know a history of the Ohio Bible Fellowship that you grew up in. And I was like, well, that's going to be really, really hard. And he finished my sentence. He goes, I know because there's no resources in any libraries for you to to utilize and then to footnote. I said, that's exactly right. He goes, so I want you to do your whole paper on personal interview. And he said, all your footnotes are going to be the personal interview explanations. And so we did. So I interviewed 15 of the 17 originally founding, original founding members of the Ohio Bible Fellowship. So that's where I get this data. I don't want you to think that I dug this up on my own. Okay. Um, but that's the, that's the, um, I grew up with separatists before people knew what really separation was. That's how I put it. Um, whatever happened in 1948, right at the NAE national, um, these guys were part of that first movement out of the NAE, NAE and the IFCA was really as well. And then, and then the IFCA by the OBF guys, uh, idea was already drifting from that by deciding that they would not write on this particular topic. And so they pulled out. So those are the churches I grew up in. I grew up in a very militant, separatist, fundamental uh, group of great expository preachers. These guys could, these guys could really herald the world, word. And um, uh, they, also, they also were big on foreign missions. And uh, certainly nothing wrong with that. They also formed what's called the Ohio Bible Mission. And together, as a group of Ohio Bible Fellowship churches that used to be IFCA churches, they started planting churches together in Ohio. So certainly nothing wrong with that. But that's the group, I, that's the group of churches I grew up in. 
And then um, I grew up in a Christian day school. I went off to Christian college, undergrad, uh, grad school, and uh, came back to the church that I grew up in to be the youth pastor for 15 years and then became the pastor in 06. So observing observing lots of churches in lots of places, uh, having my origin in the way I've just explained, there was something that I just noticed over the years that was desperately missing in our church and in a lot of local churches, and that was individual, personal, spiritual reproductivity. Mm-hmm. Um, we grew up with great Bible teaching and foreign missions and some church planting, sometimes by accident, but we did it. Um, but, but, but churches were still struggling and declining. Solid churches. So that made me, maybe scratch my head when I didn't itch as a young guy. And then, um, but then when I went off to Bible college, I was around a lot of churches that were really big on evangelism. And they did well in spurts, but they also would come to times of plateau and decline. So it seemed like in fundamentalism, the kind I grew up in, they were really good at teaching, right? Expository preaching, or they were really good at reaching, right? And that sometimes came down to the spiritual skill set of the pastor. Churches become like their pastors. And and both virtuous things, right? Um, But what I noticed was, um, including me, Uh, I wasn't living the Great Commission in my own life, right? Um, And the churches I grew up around, the pastors weren't modeling like we were taught this morning. The pastor has to model what this disciple-making reality is. And these are good guys, right? These are godly guys. On their shoulders, I still stand. So by no means, this isn't an analysis. This isn't a criticism, but when you're, like I said before, when you're standing around scratching your head when it doesn't itch, something's got to give. And we hope the Bible is sufficient enough to teach us what has to give. And so it just became a passion of ours about 20 years ago and how not just the leadership of the church, but how we could equip the saints to do the work of the ministry of being mature enough to helping another member in the church grow up into understanding what spiritual reproductivity was as well. And so that really changed our whole understanding of Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, um, that equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry wasn't, wasn't, merely, wasn't merely taking your spiritual gift and employing it, right? Um, whether it be gift of helps or teaching or evangelism, right? Uh, it wasn't training them merely to... Um, it wasn't about mowing, painting, singing, teaching, even preaching. It was, what, what is Ephesians 4? That's part of it, but it's training, it's equipping every, every joint in the church to, to be uh, able to um, equip somebody else to grow up into a fuller understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Um, and not just who he is, how he lived. I think none of us have a problem with the person, the nature, and the person of Christ. But we realize that whether we liked it or not, if we really, really put our lives underneath the microscope, we, we had a problem with the way he lived in some cases. And um, so 
we started off trying to understand what it meant to do the Great Commission on a personal level and then train our people to own that too. Right? And it was hard because people, like I said, become like their pastors. And if, if they have a desire to really dive deeply into the word, often that's done at the expense of reaching someone for Christ. And if they have a desire and a big burden for souls, sometimes that's done at the expense of really owning a greater understanding of God's word. And it's even harder for people that actually have the gift of teaching and the gift of evangelism, right? So the hardest people to convince in our church what disciple-making really was were those who were most active in evangelism and most active in teaching. You would find that really weird, possibly. <laughs> but they, they were the hardest people to convince because in the doing of their gift, they were doing in their minds what? I am doing the Great Commission. I am being spiritually reproductive. And then the hardest people to actually persuade were not just people who were teaching via their gift in the church, but also who were taking that gift and also employing it in the Christian school setting. And these are people who are taught in Christian school conferences that, praise God, you've answered God's call upon your life to ministry. And they hear this language over and over, very similar to what you and I heard, right, at Bible college or seminary in relationship to the pastor-teacher or the evangelist gift. They're owning this now at a Christian school, and they're, realized, they're, they're not realizing, and, and, and I don't mean to be uh, disrespectful when I say that, the, the, the Great Commission was given to the local church, would you agree? And, and to individuals in it, all of them. Um, they're... There's a tendency in parachurch organizations to liken themselves unto the church. It's very difficult for Christian school teachers to understand that their teaching was just their job. And they happen to be in an environment where they got to teach the Bible and teach a biblical worldview. But really, my ministry is, is, is maybe that church across the street or a tat. That's where I do my disciple-making work. That's my meat and potatoes. And yeah, I'll happen to teach in a Christian school and praise God for that and maybe influence some lives there. And those were the hardest people to reach in our church because uh, our local Christian school, we supplied 60% of the teachers to that school and over 60% of the students, and it wasn't even our school. So we're going through this journey. We're going through it with Christian school teachers. And, and now... 20 years later, if those teachers were to stand up and give a testimony, I remember Linda Gray, 25 years kindergarten teacher. She, she taught all four of my kids and saw three of my kids come to Christ in her own classroom. So I praise God for Linda. But that was her, that was her, that was her life, Christian education. And I remember when she retired and she started doing disciple making at Grace Church, um, we gave her a gal named Marcia Huffman and, um, Four or six months into her learning what disciple-making really was, we have these times in our services called What's the Good News About the Good News? And uh, we'll have people stand and just give their disciple-making testimonies. That's become kind of like a cultural thing for us now. And uh, Linda stood in tears, and she said, You know, I taught for 25 years and thought that was the best thing God would ever have me to do. 
because that's what I was taught. And she's just bawling her eyes out, can hardly get through the testimony. And then she pointed to Marcia. She goes, but now I realize this is the best opportunity the Lord's given me in my life. She didn't disrespect Christian education. We still don't. We never will. But the priority of that was just immense. I, I think that was probably the most foundational, what's the good news about the good news testimony we've ever had at Grace Church? Because In our context. In our context. Um, but getting people to own what, you know, Christ's last words being our first command, right? And, and both sides of it, right? Uh, going and observing. Going and observing. Obviously, the baptizing is a local church ordinance, right? That's something we do as pastors. Um, but the going and observing is a, kind of two sides of the same coin for us. So we just launched out into understanding this. So um, there was a handful of us learning this as we went along. Um, years and years ago, uh, Tim Richmond, a good friend of mine, um, Tim Lovegrove, um, Matt Walker, um, John Goldfuss, Kent Hobie, his brother, Dr. Kevin Hobie, we were all mulling this over, and so we all got together and decided to put, the, put a conference together on under, trying to understand what disciple-making was. Um, what we'll go through here is just a little small portion of that today, but it really is, is more of a, a, the beginning of a biblical theology of disciple-making that you could present to your people that would make sense to them, if it makes sense to us. Okay, And then you realize uh, that you've got to take ownership of it and model it uh, before your people will begin to understand it. Because this is really something that's caught and taught. It's really caught and taught. And um, so let's just go through it. And, and again, we'll, we'll have to get through this pretty quickly because uh, I know we're... Uh, is this a 2 o'clock thing? 2 o'clock in? Um, so, and we don't, we can go more quickly because the grammar of all this is kind of perfunctory uh, to everyone in the room. Okay? Uh, this is uh, probably, I would say, the most all sided giving of the Great Commission account. <laughs> it's given in three of the synoptics, and actually, Mark's, Mark's offering of it is doubted, right? Mark 16. So you might, you might think that there's just two, and that's fine. But of all of them, this seems to be the most all sided. Uh, giving of the Great Commission. Um, I know there's Luke's account again in Matthew 28:19. There's actually not an exact verbal equivalent, right? But there is an equivalent for the root of the imperative make disciples, and it's in Jeremiah 12:16. So if you want to pop in your Bibles there, and uh, when you go to Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 16, uh, someone can read that, and then I also want you to go to the book of Isaiah. And I want to look at a Messianic text in Isaiah uh, chapter 50. So Jeremiah 12 and then Isaiah, um, the noun form, Mate Tuo, the basic verb form. Um, tell me where you think that word is represented in Jeremiah 12, 16. Go ahead and read. And it shall come to pass that they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name. The Lord liveth, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then shall they be built in the midst of my people. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. Okay. Um, this is the Hebrew word lamad, which gives us, really, if you, if you study that out in the Hebrew language, I'm sure a number of you have, it's really the learning of the whole person. 
It's the giving of the whole person, whether you're a dichotomist or trichotomist, right? This is body, soul, and spirit stuff from the top of your head to the bottom of your soul. This is the giving of the whole person. Uh, we'll find something very similar, um, if we go back here a second, in, in Isaiah chapter 50, in this Messianic text, it's very, very interesting, speaking of the Lord Jesus in verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning, he awakens my ear uh, to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. That's going to be fascinating when we understand how Jesus defined discipleship here towards the end. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Okay. Nonetheless, these are a couple a couple texts in the Old Testament that uh, give us a Greek translation, mathetes, to be a learner, a follower, basic elementary definition, and uh, that's where they're located in the in the in the Old Testament. Okay. Um, you move forward a little bit from the Greek to the Greek mindset here, the time of the philosophers, obviously hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in the Hellenic culture, they had philosophers. And, um, and does anyone know what their followers were called in this pagan society? Their followers were called mathetes. Okay? So this idea of understanding of what a disciple is, is Jesus didn't coin that term. <laughs> this has been going on for years. Okay, hundreds of years before Jesus. Well, this is how these learners, the followers of the philosophers, were described. They were certainly learners. I don't know how he did that. This is a touch screen, isn't it? It is, yeah. All right. What do I got to touch to get rid of it? Touch outside of it. Your touch is nicer than my touch. Well, you know, I'll I'll just touch with this. All right, good. All right, they were learners. Uh, They had to learn from a master or a teacher. Uh, By the way, all these notes should be attached to the end of your notes. I don't think I saw them. Yeah, there's some of the, there's actually a full page of references that should be on here. That's one of the typos. Only about a third of them came. This is from all the research that uh, we did together uh, underneath uh, Tim Lovegrove's oversight years ago. But nonetheless, um, they had to learn from a master or teacher. Those resources will tell you that if you were a follower of Socrates, you would never follow another dis, um, philosopher in your life. You know, there was no philosopher hopping, uh, if you will. They were very loyal to the person uh, who taught them. And uh, they were committed, uh, for sure, this was their life to the life of that philosopher and his teaching for the rest of their lives. They were imitators. Those resources will show you that um, we all know the Greek word for imitator, right? Mimitas, and we all know what that word means. They followed this to the T, almost a religious-like T, down to oftentimes their diet, uh, the kind of clothes that they would wear, even the, the gait in which they would walk. And then they would learn the voice inflection of their philosopher, the pitch, the volume, 
And even when they would get up and teach or repeat what that philosopher taught after he died, uh, everyone would know by just seeing them and hearing them, that's a follower of, okay, they would just know. Right? So, uh, a koinonia, another word that existed long before New Testament scriptures, was formed when the philosopher would pass. They would not go start following another philosopher. They would continue by way of written and oral tradition the teachings of their philosopher and what they called a koinonia. Okay. A fellowship. And you're familiar with that word, I know. Moving forward here to the uh, period between the Testaments, really the post-exilic background to Christ's ministry, uh, the Jewish mind we learned from all those resources was tremendously influenced by the Greek culture and thought. Uh, They were intrigued by the formal way in which the philosophers had been training their mathetes. They did not have, of course, learning in Mosaicism was very formal, but it wasn't as formal as they had seen, and, and, and really, uh, there were followers of the Jewish written tradition of the Talmud called the Talmud, uh, but here is where the, uh, really the tradition of the rabbi uh, came as, as they, they formalized um, a leader of the Talmud as an official teacher. As a matter of fact, Um, If you study this word rabbi in Jewish history, it's a fascinating study, right? Uh, It really is a Johnny-come-lately term, uh, as far as we understand it, uh, even when we get to the Gospels. And it was something that really wasn't found in Mosaism, right? But it was a way to... um, So when they called Jesus rabbi, right... Um, this was this was something that was formalized, maybe used in general, but formalized into a person over a group of people. And uh, um, this was really all the uh, uh, the decisions that are made based off of uh, really not not being outdone by uh, a pagan secular culture, right? And this was also the beginning of the existence of the Jewish schools of thought, such as the Hillel and Shammai schools of thought that you've all that you've all studied as well. And this is how these folks are described, very similar, very similar to the Mathetes. They were learners and listeners. They had to have a teacher. Um, they took on the same philosophy as the the Mathetes did. There was not there was not any rabbi hopping. If you were following rabbi so-and-so, he was your rabbi for life, okay? There wasn't, uh, there wasn't switching with any kind of good favor uh, at all. And they would pass along the teachings um, through written and oral traditions. They were imitators, very much like the Mathetes with the philosophers. And they could not be a Talmud, um, continued Talmud, without a fellowship, Okay? So the idea was that out of the, the Talmud would be trained the next rabbi after their rabbi would die. Okay. So when the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, really in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, that's not new stuff to Paul. He had known the Hellenic culture, 
and he had known the Jewish culture. He had lived it as an unsaved Orthodox Jew, if you will, and then a saved uh, Messianic Jew. And so when he says, commit faithful things unto faithful men so that they can do likewise, four generations and four lines, he's pretty familiar with this. This is not new stuff. This was just completely normal. Okay? So, and from within the church of Ephesus, what should Timothy and the flock at Ephesus expect? When Timothy dies or passes off the scene, they should have no problem really understanding where who the next pastor teacher is going to be. As a matter of fact, they probably should have been pretty familiar with him for years. Okay? Um, I don't think there were pulpit committees in the first century, if you know what I'm saying. If we understand this. Um, and I think it's, it's wise for us to understand the historical and cultural hermeneutic as well as the linguistic side here. But nonetheless, um, this is what they understood. And, and by the way, this is you know, generally still in, in unsaved religious Judaism. Okay, They're understanding these very clear formal ways. And they're not, most of them aren't even born again. So I, I, I'm saying that for a reason, and I think you guys might know why. Right? They were expected to serve. This is something that um, uh, that the Mathetes did not have laid as an expectation over them by their philosophers. And, of course, we understand how all this could play out in a Mosaic community. There was a deep commitment. It was their life to the life of their rabbi for the rest of their lives and to the life of that Talmud. All right? So, moving along here, because of time, the New Testament reality of discipleship. Um, some 250 different forms of uh, the word in the New Testament. The first time we see it's in reference to John the Baptist's followers in Matthew 9. Um, the Pharisees had disciples in Mark 2. What's fascinating to me is um, the ways of learning became so familiar over hundreds of years. By the time you get to the Gospels, you see the interchangeable words being used for both in, in Jewish systems, right? Whether you're saved or unsaved, a Talmud was now a disciple, and a disciple was a Talmud. It's fascinating. Anyways, you can study that out on your own. Um, Paul, in the in the chapter of his conversion, has uh, Mathetes. Uh, this was crazy. This was uh, countercultural because in, in in history for hundreds of years you couldn't be a, a Mathetes or a Talmud and be a woman. Okay, so in Acts chapter nine, in the early formation of the church, right, um, you have this lady named Tabitha Dorcas, right? Peter's called down; she's raised from the dead, and and who's mourning this sweet lady around her bed at her passing? Ladies in the community, and what had she done for them? She had made cloaks for them because they were it was chilly, and she built redemptive relationships with these ladies in town, probably saved and unsaved. And they're mourning her loss, and then she's raised from the dead, and so forth. But she's called a disciple. In Acts chapter 9, first first woman, from what we understand, uh, after the church is birthed. Jesus was always clarifying what it meant to be a true follower. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them because they follow me, right? Expert listeners. Sounds familiar from the Mathetes and from the Talmud, doesn't it? Right? They had to learn, that sounds familiar from hundreds of years of learning even in secular and religiously unsaved cultures. Um, Jesus uses this word in Matthew 11 in his invitation there. 
Um, but he makes an exclusive claim in Matthew 11:28. one of those claims that got him killed later on. What's the claim that he makes in that verse that just really boiled the blood of the religious leaders? If you take my yoke upon you and you learn of me, something's going to happen to your soul. What is that? Fine. Yeah, no one offered that in human history before. If you were a philosopher, or you were a rabbi, no one had offered soul rest yet. Jesus was the first. And when Jesus offers soul rest, they know he's claiming to be who? That's a problem for them. Okay? Um, and not just soul rest for religious men. <laughs> Right, uh, but for equally those in spiritual existence, women as well. Right, John 17. We know that his followers, Jesus prayed for this. Right, that they would obey him. Um, when he goes to, as we heard this morning in the sermon in Mark chapter one, when he goes to the future disciples and he says, "Follow me." I think, I think we all understand, or maybe should understand by now, is that's not the first time that these men would have known this had gone on in cultures for hundreds of years of existence. When, when Rabbi Jesus shows up and says, you follow me, they knew exactly what that meant. All right? Practically. Salvifically, that's God's business. So a lot of writing out there is when did the disciples actually experience that born-again reality? And some actually believe it's when they stepped out to the invitation of Jesus to follow. Only it was a spiritual commitment, not just a practical life-on-life commitment to a philosopher or to a rabbi. Okay? Uh, I don't know. You have to figure that out on your own. But my point is this. For hundreds of years... People knew how formal and how practical it was to follow one who would be a philosopher or a rabbi. So this wasn't, they they understood from at least that side of things. And we all know (laughs) um, that they still had a lot to learn, as we do, after they stepped out. But nonetheless, uh, when Jesus passes off the scene, what's formed? Right? A koinonia, right? Was it formally noted as that in, in, Luke, in Acts chapter 1 in Luke's writing? I would say they would think that they were a fellowship. They're in the upper room. The Spirit of God hasn't come yet. They're praying. But that's what, that's what you do in that culture. If you're a follower of a rabbi, he's gone. You form a fellowship, and you figure out, you figure out who's up next. Right? Uh, and then you guys know Acts 2 and, and, and following uh, but they had already formed a koinonia before the Spirit of God visits and the church is, is begun. And then it's certainly formalized, isn't it? It's certainly formalized. And then there's spiritual gifts given. Instead of rabbis, you have pastor teachers and, and evangelists and so forth and so on, all those speaking and serving gifts. But nonetheless, they knew. And now the church is, right, Acts 2, 41 to 44, all these things we enjoy as a fellowship, right? Teaching, prayer, breaking of bread, all these wonderful things. That's our koinonia. Right? And so many other things. Jesus said in Luke 9, anyone that puts his hand to the plow and turns away is not worthy of me. 
But you know what? Even unsaved people would have known that for hundreds of years already. Only he's adding the the divine component, the spiritual component to this. Okay? Uh, Much more meaningful uh, to us. He's basically saying, look, if unsaved people aren't going to join and and quit, then certainly, (laughs) then certainly a genuine believer, right? It doesn't mean there won't be struggles, uh, but ultimately, um, yeah, Abraham Lincoln had a little bit of part of this. He said, don't measure a man's character until you measure his grave. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you put that in a spiritual sense, I think we understand really what perseverance is and what Jesus was, was implying here. He continued the serving that was, you know, in Mark's theme for his whole book, um, he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus had no problem with that component and continuing that on. He did add this, right? Um, philosophers and rabbis had never had this aspect in, uh, as an expectation of their followership, right? You're going to suffer if you follow me. Right? And they didn't have this either. They never promised reward in life after death. But Jesus did, and he could, because he's the very narration of God in flesh to mankind. So uh, he could, and certainly told of those uh, rewards uh, rewards to come. Okay? So what can we conclude? Um, what would your conclusion be? Some of these are rhetorical. What would your conclusion be regarding Jesus, what he meant when he said, follow me? think we understand that as spiritual leaders what can we conclude would be the desire of a new believer would be to be led right and what protective value would mentoring these few followers of christ have on your whole local church and i guess i'll stop there and i'll just say if if none of you were pastor teacher leaders and you were um, in secular vocation, you're just working 60 hours a week, have a wife, kids, and you're worshiping in a local church. Let me ask you this question, these questions based on that understanding. Right? Um, were, were, were Jesus's disciples, let me ask you this, how many of Jesus's disciples ended up in full-time vocational ministry? Do you know? Do we know? I think we know some. We would say Peter probably, for sure. Right? John probably. Um, who else? Paul as an apostle, right? Could we, can we think of some that maybe never went off into full-time vocational ministry as we know it, or even bivocational ministry as we know it? Thomas go off to India. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm asking honestly. <laughs> I ask this honestly every time I, I, I talk through this because, for what we understand, we don't know that all of them did. But yet the Great Commission was still given to them. So if they're going to go back to their local churches or start attending local churches that are formed in the early stages of church development in the first century, how are they to function? They were to function as disciple-making people. The command to be a disciple-maker was no more uh, given to Peter than it was given to Peter's wife. 
or to Peter's children that may not have gone into full-time vocational ministry. So our passion as leaders then in our local churches is is to prayerfully um, move forward in trying to figure out how do you how do you when he talks about culture this morning I, and I and I appreciate that I think I understand what he means. Um, it's taken us 20 years to form some type of a culture, and I don't think we're anywhere near where we need to be. But 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 I would just encourage you to prayerfully consider how you would ask God for wisdom, how you would get each person in your seats, each worshiper in your church to personally own this. Um, and and this is not just learning and teaching right remember this is two sides of the same coin <laughs> this is the what was preached last night right for sure and what was preached this morning to be sure it's the learning it's the nourishment within it's the going without but they're not mutually exclusive they're two parts of one organic whole and then we're to equip the saints to learn that and then you've got to ask God for wisdom of how that's going to be narrated, modeled for them, and, and, and as you walk with them into this very uh, uncomfortable yet necessary way of living. Okay, That takes a long time because our people have learned to do church in very certain ways. And they're doing church in the ways they've been preached to do church. And I can't call any of it wrong. Right? I had thousands of wonderful sermons preached to me in my life. I didn't even understand what it meant to be a disciple maker until I was 20 years full time in Christian ministry. So I'm not saying anyone made a big mistake. But I didn't understand this, and I'm still learning, right? I'm 42 years old in my life, having been a pastor full time since 22. And I'm, and I'm learning what it means to do this in my own community in Menor, Ohio, for the first time. Right. It, it, it is fascinating. To, to, um, because the way we reached was how. How do we reach in our churches? I'll tell you how we did in ours. It was always door-to-door. There was always bus. There was always VBS, always youth outreach, and always Christmas and Easter. And always mailings. Right? A lot of it was inviting people. So we were taught, literally, that the church is a saving agency. And the Great Commission is the antithesis of that. The Great Commission taught the church to be a sending agency. Go. Go, go, go. How long does it take to unlearn that? You can't shove that down people's throats. Because <laughs> they're good people. And they're just doing what they've been taught for years. So you've got to have some patience, right? And then after you get them going, it's like, oh, wow, that takes up all their time. Going, good. Everyone's talking to someone about, you know, the Lord. and Everyone's building a redemptive relationship. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, if they get saved, guess what? We're going to have you do all their training, too. Oh, not me, pastor. That's your job. That's what you're making the big bucks for, right? That's your job. That's the, that's the teacher's job. They need to disciple them. No, 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 no. I'm going to equip you 
to do the work of the ministry so that you can be a joint that is offering something to another joint in the church, growing them up into, and look at the text in Ephesians 4, an epinosis of Jesus Christ. A fuller knowledge, a mature understanding of who he is and how he lived. Right? So that's spiritual reproductivity. That's spiritual reproductivity. That's just what disciple making is. So we maybe need to be careful for a while whether we're going to use the word discipleship or disciple making. Because for discipleship, sometimes people, that's just training or getting trained. Disciple making is much more organic than merely that, if that makes sense. Right? And then everyone in your church owning that as equally as everybody else. Now, we're 20 years into this. Uh, we put this down into just simple three-phrase statement for our people to try to grasp all of this. And there's like a lot more than just what we've looked at today for time because we got a minute left. Everyone try to win one, lead one, while you're following one. And, and those ones are always your life until you see Jesus. We're always trying to win one. We're always leading one while we're always following one. And who models that? I do. I have two men that disciple me. I follow them, right? Neither one of them are pastors on our staff. They're in our church. I don't get discipled by anyone outside my church. I think this is a local church thing. I don't think there's a lot of pastors being discipled by someone in their local church, especially senior pastors. I think we need to. We're going to model this for our people and not just do as I say, not as I do. So two men model, two men disciple me, right? While I'm also discipling somebody else, while all of us are trying to win one by building a redemptive relationship in town at all times. And that's up to God, right? So we're at least following and at least leading while we're waiting to win. And then if someone, you have the opportunity to win and you see a harvest in your own life, then whose job is it to disciple that person? You. But you're not going to be left out in the desert with nothing. So at Grace, we provide them time, we provide them a space, and we provide them with resources. We are to be equipping them. This is the hands and feet stuff. We're training our people to be spiritually reproductive. That you walk, it's training wheels, and then you hold their hand, and you've got to provide the very practical reality for them to do this. So it's not just mystical. It's not just a theory or an idea. No, this is what it is, and this is what it looks like, and you're going to watch your pastor do it. They're going to see me get discipled by Bob Gray in an open space, and they're going to see me the next week discipling Frankie Schmidt, right? And then they're going to hear me give a testimony of, hey, pray for my friend, right? Pick one. By now, thank the Lord, since 42 years old, I have a lot more friends in town than I have just mere acquaintances. There's a big difference, by the way. <laughs> I was taught to give a tip of the hat and a track to an acquaintance. Then there's a difference between building redemptive relationships, right? Right? So any one of my friends you want to pick, let's pick Mike Moses, right? And I can say, hey, look, on a Wednesday night, it's a good news testimony. I, I had lunch with Mike, or we went golfing, and, and I got to the gospel again with Mike. He's an Orthodox Jew, and I just think he really listened to me about Jesus like he never has before. 
So would you pray for Mike tonight? So what do they see in their pastor? They see him being mentored, they see him mentoring, and they see him talking about who a redemptive relationship in town. And folks, that is always happening. Modeled in the pastor. Right? And then modeled in the leadership. And then learned, caught and taught by people over time. And believe me, it takes time. And it's good, it's a good process. It's a good process. That's what it means to have a culture of disciple making. When we first started doing what's the good news about the good news testimonies, um, none of our deacons or elders could give one. But they were all four services a week serving faithful, tithing, sweet people. They couldn't, they didn't have one. And I wasn't even upset at that. Because I didn't. But you, you can't steer a parked car. You've got to do something. You know? And so you just get going and figure it out as you go. Um, but hopefully biblically based. But, um, but now, um, you know, any deacon or any elder, good news about the good news. I always start those, by the way. Whenever I'm in a class or a pulpit and I'm doing good news, I always lead first. And then I can point to any deacon elder in a moment, yep, pray for, yep, had the chance to give the gospel here, yep, just met a neighbor four doors down, they just moved in for the first time, and my wife and I are already praying for Jack, and Sue. just boom, 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 boom. Now, those good news testimonies could go on literally for hours, where in the early days it was crickets. It takes time, Right? Praise God, my friend James got saved, and, and I'm just in here to give the testimony because I'm running out of the auditorium to the lobby to go disciple him. He's here for the first time for discipleship. And I got this, Pastor. That's kind of cool, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I don't want you guys to think I'm some kind of weirdo, but that's kind of really cool to me. Yeah, ditch my Wednesday night Bible study so you can go disciple someone. I was like, yeah, <laughs> go to it, man. You know, I gave you the space, I gave you the time, and I provided for you the resources. So I don't even have to worry about if you're going to go off rails. Because I'm equipping you to help James now become a significant part of Grace Church of Mentor in the future. And, and come and see me if you need to. But right now I'm going to oversee this kind of people. It really kind of changes the understanding of 1 Peter 5 too. Feed the flock. All those aspects you you really do oversee a different kind of sheep when this becomes a culture but be willing for the patient time and process okay i know that was a drink from a fire hose get out of here you're dismissed we're a couple minutes late i'll hang out here if you guys want to what's next there's no more network sessions or is there no okay there's a board meeting and then campus tour okay any questions do you guys have any questions understanding that i i've I've got time i don't want to leave you like who's this weirdo you know yeah what's it look like when you are a disciple what what actually is going on there well we're always studying the word together we're always going through a book of the bible together and uh then we're always you know i don't know where you're at with second timothy four when paul says bring me my cloak i'm cold uh, bring me the books, but especially the parchments, right? So we're okay, certainly having the Bibles always our, our foundation and resource for study. But we're okay with systematized truth of the Bible written in books. And so we will study a book of the Bible together, but we will also be, continue to screen books that we can have our people, comfortable our people studying. So we vet resources. And we have written a pathway for our people. It's called From New Birth to Last Breath. So if I've been working with you in a factory for 10 years and you finally trust Christ, 
our pastor would have given to me what I'm going to study with you for the rest of our lives together. It's literally like that. It's life on life for life. But I don't, I don't have the time as a husband, as a dad, and a guy working 60 hours a week, right, to come up with all the material myself, right? But my pastor's provided it for me, and he's provided time, and he's provided space. And we even do that in, in three of our four regularly scheduled services. And that's a whole, that's a whole bake and shake that we talk about when we do the whole seminar of how that happens over time. Um, but I know that I'm going to study from milk to meat with you and everything in between. And there no one's in a hurry because this isn't an 11 week class or a 10 hour block course. Um, this is just learning as we go. So who is this man that met you? Is he uh, retired missionary? Is he? No, he was. He's a he's a man in our church that my dad led to Christ 40 years ago. Okay. okay. And uh, I grew up. He's uh, 75 years old. Uh, I'm 55. And um, he's one of two. And uh, the other one, my dad also led to Christ uh, about the same time, Dave Hickson. So Bob Gray and Dave Hickson are, are, are huge uh, mentors for me. And um, they, they watch over my soul as I watch over the, the soul of the flock. And, uh, and then I also disciple a handful of people that I've personally led to Christ. I didn't lead my first friend in town to Christ till I was 42. I had led a lot of people to Christ, but it was typically funerals, weddings, evangelistic outreaches, or people, our people brought to us. But the people I've led to Christ um, who are still with us to have gone home to be with the Lord, uh, I disciple on a regular basis. So Frank, uh, Chris... Jerry Spradlin, my former neighbor of 18 years ago, and now Adam Stallman, who is the husband of the gal that we bank with. She's not saved yet, but he got saved. I'm discipling him on a regular basis. And um, those take up hours in your week. So even a pastoral schedule changes when you yourself become a disciple maker and take particular ownership of just those people. But you don't have to worry about the rest of your people like we used to. Because they're all being mentored by each other. And we're at about 85% um, functionality with everyone, win one, reach one, follow one now. Everyone, win one, follow one, lead one. It took 20 years to get to 85%, but, and, but it's been such a blessing. And, and now the church is, now, now the church, we understand what it means for Jesus to build the church instead of for Tim Potter to build it, because I could build it. I could get people to come. And it's just, it'll, it'll exist more in perpetuity now. Another fascinating thing is, too, the people who are discipling people that they've led to Christ, those people are also replacing them in ministry. That's interesting. So sound booth, ushers, Sunday school teachers, choir members, parking lot attendants, it's fascinating. Financial committee, it took a long time, but little bit by little bit. Um, it, that spiritual reproductivity is not just, it's all the way down to spiritual skill sets and, and, and roles of service in the church. So if I die today, uh, the church knows what's going to happen. They already know who their next pastors are going to be, right? I'm 55 and, and preparing to transition uh, because I've mentored Right, with Second Timothy two two things are very much an easy an easy reality now in grace. 
Um, the hard thing is figuring out between two good guys. That's the only hard thing about this, right? Which guy's going to lead and which guy's going to be the associate. But um, uh, um, everyone knows it's just a healthy, stable environment of reproductivity, and, and, and uh, it's going to be okay. And then next things for me are just naturally right out of our local church, right? I don't have to be the director of a mission board. I don't have to go um, alma mater. A couple of trustees have called a couple of times. Why don't you be our next president? It's like, eh, no, no thanks. Uh, this is this is the great commission for me <laughs> in the local church. And, and I'll just move from quarterback to wide receiver underneath their authority, the guys I've mentored, and we'll go deep for the gospel's sake, God willing, out of Grace Church. That's just the way it's working for us. So... Um, and we're just thrilled to let it. It's a glorious agony, to be sure, but it's certainly more glory than agony. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, and then to see disciple-making people become very, very big gospel visionaries. Mm-hmm. Their Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts burden grows greater and greater and greater. The bigger it is, and they're fun- the more functional they are in their Jerusalem. It's fascinating to watch. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast.